Welcome to the Whose Body Is It podcast. I'm your host, Isabella Malvin. For those who don't know me, I'm a life coach, a hypnotist, a former birth worker, and a former liberal feminist turned radical truth teller. On this podcast, you'll learn about the ideologies, industries, and technologies attempting to control our minds and bodies, such as transgender ideology, pornography, prostitution, and the many tentacles of the medical industrial complex. Together, we'll untangle patriarchal lies as you listen to jaw-dropping interviews with women from around the world. Warning, while listening to this podcast, you might find yourself triggered or perhaps notice where you've been biting your tongue on the issues that matter most to you. In the masterclasses available on my site, as well as my one-on-one coaching and hypnosis, you will learn to stop getting triggered by every freaking thing, learn to cultivate resilience, gain knowledge, and if we're working together one-on-one, stop unwanted behaviors and increase your self-confidence. You can book your first session and check out the masterclasses in the library at whosebodyisit.com. And I just want to say that it's because of your endless support that I'm able to interview amazing women, get their stories out, and produce regular content for you. So with that being said, please like, comment, and subscribe to my channel on YouTube. And if you're just listening in, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And consider making a financial contribution via the link in my show notes. You can also support the podcast by getting your activist stickers. So my pro-woman stickers have the power to intercept transhumanist programming. So take a photo of your stickers out in the wild and tag me on Instagram at whose body is it? Without further ado, let's get into this week's story. I'm Charlie. Um, I'm from the U.S., born and raised here, and I was exposed to gender ideology probably around six. When I was five, I started getting the inklings. Um, I think it started with being jealous of boys, and that was eventually morphed and misinterpreted. Uh, I was jealous of them being able to take their shirts off, being able to stand to pee, you know, all that. And I don't know, as, as I got to around six... I started being more of a classic tomboy, you know, refusing dresses and all that. Um, I also had some pretty severe behavioral problems. Um, And so I was taken to a whole bunch of specialists and, you know, occupational therapists, physical therapists, psychiatrists. And one of them eventually brought up gender dysphoria. And, you know, I was, I just was in there talking to her. I was like, I was seven. Um, And I'm sure I was just telling her how much I wanted to be a boy, which I wanted to be a boy. Um, I think that's common in this world. Um, And she knew all about my behavioral problems. And so she told my parents, she's like, you know, I think, I think your kid has gender dysphoria. Um, And I was like, oh, me, me. Yes, I do. That's great. I get to be a boy. And so, yeah, once that was brought up as an option to me, I mean, I was ecstatic and I took that along with me for, you know, the next nine years, eight, eight or nine years. 
And so really ever since then, I mean, I was, I was still adamant that I wanted to be a boy. Um, and my parents were using the information that they had. We were all being told that that was the right thing to do, that like people commit suicide because they're in the wrong bodies and we need to get on the Dutch protocol. And of course I was seven. I was in support of it. I had no idea. I was like, Psh, I get to change my gender and my sex. This is great. And so then I was put on the Dutch protocol trajectory, basically, ever mm-hmm. since then. Can you explain uh, what the Dutch protocol is for those who aren't familiar? Yeah, exactly. Dutch protocol, from what I understand, is used in like early childhood transitions like that, where you know, you diagnose the kid with gender dysphoria and then they're put on the path of starting puberty blockers as soon as they reach their natural puberty or like a certain stage of it. And then once they're on blockers, they take opposite sex, wrong sex hormones to mimic their peers and supposedly basically become the other sex. And that often leads into surgeries and Mm -hmm. um you know that sort of thing Mm -hmm. so so you were like taken to like a a clinic was this your pediatrician like who was prescribing the puberty blockers and what what do you do you remember the names of the drugs that that were prescribed and oh that's a great question so it wasn't my general pediatrician we were sent to like the I don't know how we got into that because it seems like really expensive, but the high end the gender clinic, there's a gender clinic where I live, like a pretty well-known one. And that's where I got all my mm-hmm. treatment. Like an endocrinologist, like probably some kind of It was of an endocrinologist. endocrinologist. Yeah. 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 So you're six or you're seven years old. You're going with your parents to like a special gender clinic. Your parents believe at this point that um, this is the best alternative compared to suicide. Um, and then you're, you're on these drugs and you're told you can pause what you're going through essentially because it's traumatizing and we don't want you to suffer anymore. And so what, what was your, and, and for those listening, like, will you just, um, so you're not you're 19 now so if you were seven okay so this was in 12 years ago is that right yeah well i didn't um i wasn't starting hormones then i mean i started the blockers and hormones at 12 Mm -hmm. but we i mean i'm sure that we were told about all that when i was seven and i think i started going to the clinic when i was 10 or 11 just to like start checking if i was going through puberty so they're looking Mm -hmm. you know earliest signs like right nip it at the bud right right but it could be the prescribed i mean there is the you know the precocious i've heard stories of the precocious what's called precocious puberty where Mm -hmm. you know women will start the girls will start to bleed like age nine and so okay so they were kind of just keeping tabs on you like to surveil to see like okay as soon as we see signs that's when we're going to start the blockers so leading up into that point it was just more like what's called the social transition would you say yeah, it was a social transition and fully so. Um, I got my name, my name changed and birth sex and 
pronoun. Well, I don't know if you can change pronouns, but birth sex when I was nine. Like your passport, like ID, like that. Those kinds yeah, of all that, like wow. birth certificate. And I mean, of course, I was ecstatic once again, but I was nine. And it's been, actually been a huge hassle to change everything back. Um, but I did just kind of a tangent from that is that I, I kept kind of kept the name that I transitioned to just to, I didn't feel like telling everyone the story and like changing my name to a totally different thing again after living this whole life. And I, I have a pretty unisex name, so um, I kept that. But I did change my middle name back. Mm-hmm. So was there anyone in your life that you can remember who was not in support of what, you know, what your parents were like helping to facilitate? Like, or was there just kind of all around support, and you know, like just... I think it was just all around, yeah, all around support. I mean, maybe I had some older relatives that didn't really understand. I mean, yeah, there were a couple older folks that just didn't get it or like refused to say he. And I was like, why are they doing that? That's terrible. And mm-hmm. But that was about it. I just thought that was because they were old. But right. everyone my age, especially in I live in a really liberal area or lived in a liberal area, very supportive and no one ever heard the other side and not even my parents. I think I, they were trying the best they could and all the information they were given was from one side. Mm -hmm. So then you're 12, you're showing signs of puberty Mm-hmm. And that's when you were prescribed. That's when you started taking the puberty blockers. And can you like walk me through what that was? Like, are you taking pills every day? At what point were you injecting? Like I, I the part of this like puberty block, it's like, it's, it's so abstract. Like we see the before and the after photos, but I think it's important for people to really like internalize that this is like, um, a medical kind of like slavery, right? Where you are beholden to keeping up a protocol to maintain this like version of yourself you have in your head, right? Or people are, you know, projecting onto you. So, so what was that like? What was the, what was your experience with like the medication? Cause at that point you hadn't been on, or were you medicated on, you know, antidepressants and stuff like that like how did that shift and what was what was that process like yeah so I actually was medicated on antidepressants at first which took six years to get off um and that's something I can you know all the comorbidities with Mm -hmm. mental health I can talk about later but very depressed even after transitioning and um but the blocker I was taking the two at the same time probably terrible for me um and I got it. It was a, a little implant in my arm. I I don't remember the name. It wasn't Lupron. I didn't even know. See, see, this is why I'm so glad I, we're talking about this because I was under the impression that it was like injection, like like Lupron, I believe is typically injected, but you had an implant that was dosing you regularly, I, I would guess with hormones to suppress your estrogen. Exactly. Yeah, that's what it was. It was 
felt like a little worm in my arm. And I think you had probably had to have it replaced every once in a while, but um, so I didn't need to take shots or take pills or anything. Um, it was, I think there's a birth control method like that as well. The Escher. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause it's like, you're a child. It's like, they're, they're looking at the effectiveness based on like human error. And so the younger <laughs> yeah. you are, the, the less responsible they deem you to be, the more they're going to, they're going to urge you to do the method that has like less um, possibility for human error. Slightly. And like, also what child wants to have a needle in them, you know, it's not particularly uh, appealing. No, that's a, actually a great point that I never thought about. Yeah. So you have this little worm in your arm and, and what was happening to your body in this time? You know, at the time, all I noticed was mean stopping puberty. Um, I was, I was kind of a late bloomer. I just started puberty then, at least physically. Um, so I hadn't had my period yet. I had like pea-sized bumps under my nipples that I was freaking out about. Um, and I was like, I need to get this as soon as possible to stop this from happening. Because if I get my period, I'm going to like kill myself, basically. And so, yeah, it stopped it. I mean, it did work. And I think part of the protocol was not wanting me to be without any hormones and like kind of mimicking my male peers and so I got a low dose testosterone cream about like two months later when I was 12 which they told me was just going to make me grow a little bit but then my voice changed in like three months and yeah it wasn't just making me grow they, they were like you're going to grow tall and strong and big or like they're just like we just want to keep you on a normal growth curve so that you're not behind your peers just on a blocker which i mean that's point in the right direction but yeah they said it was just going to make me grow they're like oh this is such a low dose it'll be reversible and then my voice changed and we're like huh i wonder if that's reversible but i I mean, I was so excited. I couldn't stop talking. I was, I loved having a deep voice at the time. Mm. It was like earlier than a lot of boys' voices were changing. I was like, huh, I thought I was a late bloomer. This seems weird. Mm. And so how many years on testosterone until you we're like, maybe this doesn't feel good. Maybe, maybe I don't want this. Cause it sounds like, like it was a pretty smooth process. Like you didn't have much resistance from anyone in your community. Your parents mm -hmm. were in full support. sounds like your peers were, you know, you just, everyone was kind of just, here you go. Like, here's the path forward. So yeah. what was the point where it seemed not so smooth anymore? It took about three years after that, um, almost on the dot. I was 15. I can't remember exactly what the first thought was. Um, I'd had kind of a religious stage. And so part of that, which is not my belief now, but I was thinking like, man, if God made me this way, then like I'm in living sin doing this, um, mm. which you know, I still have the belief I was made this way for a reason. For different reasons but 
so it first started with that and I'm like I'm am I ever going to get married because like anyone else religious that I marry would never want to marry me um that all went out the window we all have weird stages um and then I started thinking about health effects I think I looked up something about the blocker and then saw someone on reddit or something um just someone else's opinion I don't even know what they said but that is something I had never seen before I'd never seen any anything against it and it just it broke something and just I had it was never the same from then on I was like wow I actually have to think about this then it all kind of came flooding in I was like yeah I'll never be able to have my own child if I continue with this I could have some serious bone problems memory issues this this just isn't good for me and you know just I'm sure I wrote a long list of reasons um, when I was processing it at the time um, I think I still have it actually and it took a lot for me to just talk about it that was just it was a pretty short like couple month identity crisis at the time um, but getting the nerve to tell my parents and my sister about it was like harder than coming out I was it was so hard to talk about like I cried every time I talked about it and at first like one of my family members was like oh don't do that <laughs> I was like oh I don't know what to do um and eventually don't do that meaning like don't entertain the idea that this could be not the right choice yeah and that was totally an initial response like they're so supportive of this cause now and actually she loves your podcast um but yeah everyone's initial reaction just it shows how much we had been told the other way um but eventually i mean my family's always been obviously very supportive of me and they're all on my cause now mm. but you know at the time really tough to bring that stuff up um, especially when i was having kind of a crisis about it what do you think was so tough for them like why do you think they had that resistance to what you were bringing up like your concerns i mean just the thought of like how sh well first of all how sure i was um and like putting so much trust in a child to make these like make these decisions was just probably tough in the first place and then hearing them change their mind i'm sure that was a fear everyone had deep down that they didn't talk about that came true like i remember they asked me when i was 12 like are you sure this is a big decision and i was like i've never been more sure of anything in my life so point being don't trust kids um they yeah i'm sure it was just hard for them because of that and it was also a a permanent decision to detransition which I'm glad I did but I'm sure they were worried like if I changed my mind again can't trust kids um so probably just all of that it was probably mm -hmm. hard everyone's beliefs were being challenged as well and then in terms of like the financial investment you know was all of your medical stuff covered was this all covered by your parents like insurance plans or was this like because like I've, I've heard stories of like the, that there's like a lot of shame and the 
I've heard stories of other parents have holding a lot of shame for, like you said, having put so much trust in their child and then also like having raised money like from friends and family for medical costs or, you know, taking savings and, you know, just like the, yeah, the shame around having put so many resources towards something that was so destructive. Totally. Um, So, yeah, I mean, the way we did it, that was a pretty sneaky gender clinic. I think they found ways to like make it covered by insurance by like, you know, wording things right for the insurance agency. So it wasn't out of pocket for us, which I mean, for my parents, I'm glad about that, but it's just amazing that they like the endocrinologist can bill the insurance people and say like, Oh, this is for, I don't know. They probably said it was for precocious puberty, honestly. Mm-hmm. And so like they need the blockers for that. And since my legal sex was changed, they could say they needed testosterone for me to go through normal puberty. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were just workarounds that made us made it covered by insurance. Which is like, which we at the time seems great and like just, but then when you're like, oh wait, they made it so easy, you know, like it's, yeah. it shouldn't be accessible at all, let alone like seamless in my opinion. But um, okay. So your parents are like, are you sure you're feeling a lot of like grief over even talking about it? I'm assuming at this point that you had a lot of like trans identified friends or you were like pretty immersed in the LGBT umbrella or what, what was like your social life? Were you dating? Like what was that like at the time? And then coming out, you know, and being like, Hey everyone, I'm, I'm actually not doing this anymore. Yeah. So I think what made it hard, um, I was kind of on a different, I wasn't really in the queer circle at the time that I had that stage when I was like 11 and on the internet too much. I'm glad I came out of that. But when I was 15, you know, 13, 14, 15, there were a lot of people at my school that were transitioning from female to male. Um, I I mean, as we all know, it's just happening a lot, but I, I just kind of had a normal friend circle. I was, I was stealth at my school, basically only a couple people knew and I I didn't really like to talk about it. Like it was, I mean, it was really hard to tell because I was 15. I was like really into bodybuilding. I was super muscular, deep voice. So I wasn't really in the queer circle, especially with my religious phase. I was like not, I thought dating was like against the rules or whatever. Mm. Um and were you con- were you thinking of yourself as heterosexual? Like, were you pursuing girls at the time, or did you have crushes? Like, were you just seeing yeah, yourself yeah. as a heterosexual man versus like a trans man? That's the thing. I wasn't even trans. I mean, I guess I was trans identified, but at the time, I just identified as male. Like, I had totally stealthed myself. Only liked girls, and I mean, I've always been lesbian I still am but yeah only liked girls like you would not probably have been able to tell 
which yeah, to be fair, everything everything worked really well when it came to hormones, mm. but because not good it was in the long run. Because of the puberty, but yeah, like yeah, because of the puberty, because like, it was, you know, we're not talking about like a 45-year-old man who all of a sudden wants to like pass who like will never yeah yeah i was i was just so malleable at the time that it just it worked so yeah to answer your question that was just kind of how my social circle was just normal friends saw myself as male everyone called me that liked girls Wow. wow wow what was it like using like the men's rooms or like did you ever feel fear was there ever like a voice in in the back of your head that was like I need to be careful in a way that the other the other men with quotes like don't have to be or like what yeah what was it like in those spaces for you yeah I think I always just tried to knock it out of my head as a just as a form of denial but I always had that inkling in the back I'm like man if someone like open the stall door right now I could be screwed um and that yeah that makes me think think about like single sex spaces and both ends now but um yeah on one end I could have been really unsafe and on one end like I still feel like I was kind of betraying everyone else for being in a like not being the sex in a in the same like single sex space but yeah a weird feeling sometimes just thinking like i'm the only one in this room without a penis probably i mean who knows now but wow so take us back to yeah the, the conversations with your family and you know what was the next kind of step from there like did you stay in that school? Like, how how did you even begin to undo this? Yeah, and that that was part of the tough decision. I'm like, I'm going to have to tell everyone, and they're going to think I'm transitioning. I think I was afraid that everyone would think I'd be a trans woman because no one wow. knew. Wow. Um, yeah. So, unfortunately, it worked out in my favor when the pandemic happened, just a few months after that. So everyone was home and no one saw me. Um, I had just started actually a new kind of a new school. I was doing a dual enrollment program. So I was, I was in college. So I still saw some people from my school. I was always pretty just shy about telling people. Um, I was growing my hair out, but still looked pretty masculine um, so when I stopped hormones, it just it just took me a while to look feminine again. I mean, it took me probably just till like a year or two ago. So I was able to hide it pretty well. I would just like not say my pronouns and like kept my name unisex and had like mid-length hair. Um, so I just didn't talk about it. And then once it was 2020, no one saw me. And I was just kind of at home. And to go on another tangent of that is when an eating disorder started, um, which I think was kind of a subconscious form of control, like being afraid of starting female puberty. Um, so once I was off the blockers and testosterone, I think I got those, I stopped testosterone in November of 2019. And then I 
got my blocker out in January of, I guess, January, 2020. So like right after that, it kind of started with losing my appetite from the hormonal changes. I was, I just felt pretty sick from it for a couple months. I just remember feeling like shaky and nauseous and weak. And so that made me lose my appetite. I had stopped working out because of back problems. So I was like eating less. And then I started losing weight and I loved it. And I think, you know, mm. the back of my mind was like, hmm, you know, you don't get your period if you don't eat enough. Mm. And I did end up in the hospital just from being really underweight, um, like 80 pounds at five, six wow. in August. And then have been. I mean, basically gaining weight since then, that's pretty tough to recover from. And, but I did get my period finally when I was 17. Um, I finally just did the final push to gain weight. I was like, okay, this is not okay. I have to have my period. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get through it. And this was a real period. This wasn't a withdrawal bleed being on hormonal birth control. This was like a, mm-hmm. a result of ovulation lead i believe so i mean at the time i wasn't very aware of like signs of ovulation but um, but you weren't on birth control no 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 i wasn't yeah and what was that Um, like so this you're 17 you've never you've never bled you've never had a cycle before and not just you were not just talking a non-trans identified woman who has an eating disorder who has a delayed period all those years which you know is is it is obvious is a thing but yeah totally this real real fear around how- so what was that first lead like you know i was i think i was pretty excited actually yeah i'd finally come to acceptance um and it's not like i i didn't want to have a period all those years i did it was just mental block I was, I was kind of leading up to it. I'm like, okay, I'm probably at the weight where I could bleed now. And mm. I did. Yeah, I was really happy. I was excited to get my next one. Um, it's taken a while for it to be regular. But mm-hmm. yeah, it was a really good feeling. I was like told all my family and sister and my f- best friend and kind of celebrated for myself. Wow. And I imagine it's like a whole introduction. It's like period products and like hot water bottles. And it's like, it's a whole world, yeah. of, you know, like totally. care and yeah. And like just a, it being a sign of health, like alone, yeah. just being like, wow, my, my body is doing what it's designed to do. And that's, that's a huge celebration, but also just the, yeah, the like initiation that you didn't have, have before. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was definitely a sign of health for me. And so like socially, you know, how did you how did you relate to people? How did you talk about how do you talk about what you've been through? Are you still guarded? I mean, how how yeah, how have you given like the cultural context and, you know, being in a a blue state, you know, how do you, how have you navigated? Cause this is all pretty recent. You're, you're 19 years old. Now you had your first period less than two years ago. I mean, 
yeah, can you talk a little bit about how you've navigated just like the cultural war that that we're in, um, given your frontline experience? Yeah. yeah, that's a good question. I'm, I mean, I can't say I'm really the most like opinionated or eloquent or radical person. So I don't talk about it a ton. Um, I think when I first detransitioned, I had taken a gap year after high school because I, I graduated early. And so I was away from my community at home and in more rural places where talking about it was more accepted. And I, I mean, I've really seen a surprising amount of support. Uh, I guess I haven't been in like city proper and talked to people with like short dyed hair about it. I don't know how well that would go, but um I've had a lot of support probably equal to what I had mm. when I transitioned, which I think there's a lot of doubt in other people's minds that they don't talk about until mm. something like this happens and it's brought up and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, good job on that one. So it really, when I do talk about it, has been a good experience and I think strangely it's helped to be and I've kind of traveled in and out of more red states in the west um, and lived there for a bit and now the main concern is just being lesbian but mm. um, but I think people are a little more think better about this mm. um, when they're not kind of blinded by the all the things we're told so around when, here. when you say the the now the concern is being lesbian you mean just facing like homophobia or within yourself or like the internalized stuff or the like external response to when I mean both okay yeah I've I've never really had any problems with it but you know walking around in a super red state with my girlfriend and like maybe we should think twice about holding hands. Well, it's not like that where I'm from. Mm -hmm. um, I've never felt like genuinely unsafe. And then, yeah, internally, I'm sure I still have stuff to work through. Sometimes I, I just wish I were straight because it seems easier. And I'm sure I have internalized homophobia going on as well. So yeah, I think both of those. Mm -hmm. Why do you think it's important? I mean, why did you want to come in and talk to me on the, the podcast? Like, what what do you want people to know about, like, your story specifically about what you've been through? You know, what what do you think is most important for people to understand that you maybe you haven't seen talked about? Yeah, I mean, I think especially with the the sort of transitioning that's going on now. Um, I don't think I fully fit into the like rapid onset category, but I see that happening a lot. And speaking to that, I just think, well, speaking to that and experiences like myself, we just need to think twice about me like mental health comorbidities, why kids are doing this and what we can do to treat the underlying cause. I had like severe anxiety since I was five, some sort of childhood depression, I'm sure depression when I was 
10, 11, ton of anxiety, eating disorder, you know, all that. I think most cases of people wanting to transition involve things like this. Um, also like neurological factors, like autism has been linked to it. And I think if we just make Im some improvements on some of this before thinking about transition, you know, the kids that are probably spending their whole day on the internet reading about transitioning and like in those circles, like if they just went outside for a couple hours every week, how much would change? So you feel like the internet like, played a huge role in your like kind of indoctrination? I would say so. I mean, later on, um, I had non-internet versions of that before when I was really young, but you know, once I was at kind of another formative state of like starting puberty, I think it, it absolutely did. And that's happening a lot. So yeah, that's kind of one thing. I just wish I could get across to everyone who's going through that as well as, you know, internalized homophobia, mm -hmm. all the internalized things. Um, mm -hmm. Just the fact that kids cannot make those decisions. I mean, if you really need to do a social thing where you use the other pronouns, my moral compass doesn't go towards that, but it's better than making permanent changes. I was so sure at 12, you just can't, can't make those decisions at that age. Even when you're 18, like my brain isn't fully developed. I'm 19. So that kids making decisions. Yeah. I think, I think those are my kind of my main things. I wish I could get across to more people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What was your, like understanding of like opposition like when like maybe when you got like into puberty like did you know that there were these there were these women called turfs who uh wanted to kill trans people like were you exposed to any kind of like opposition or like what did you how did you relate to that like I'm I'm, I'm always, I always like to ask formerly trans identified women like what did you think of turfs and like how did you yeah. navigate that that part if that was there like yeah no mind. i think i i think i'd heard of turfs and like knew what that stood for and everything yeah i'm sure i, I think i remember like being like turfs are terrible they want to kill us sort of thing i had never even heard of seeing a turf in my life or heard anyone like um but yeah we'd all been told that i think everyone that's trans now has heard that term even when i was probably 11 or 12 I knew what that was but that was the only opposition I'd really heard of that or like really religious people mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um yeah that was really about it I would say would you mind would you mind talking a little bit about like the lasting effects like on your body were the drugs completely reversible like we know that you've had a period we know that you didn't yeah. uh get a double mastectomy because you puberty was blocked so you didn't yeah. you know there weren't breasts to to cut off but would you yeah would you talk a little bit about the myth of reversibility and and kind of what in terms of health repercussions like what you are what you have observed or what you're still working through yeah I definitely don't think it was reversible I mean I have like my breasts have grown to probably the size they're going to be they're probably still growing um and I've gotten my period. So those things I'm really grateful have 
come back, I think my face is probably a little different than it would have been just because I was on hormones while I was growing. Um, so my bone structure probably changed a bit. Um, it's really interesting to think about, you know, what I would have looked like mm. if I hadn't been on it. Obviously, my voice did not go back to what it was, which is kind of heart wrenching sometimes. Like I like having a deep voice, but it kind of destroyed my singing capacity. Um, and so it's really awkward being in like women's circles. If we're singing something, I'm like an octave below and I'm like, I promise I'm actually a woman, <laughs> but, but yeah, no one, no one really cares. But I think last year, mm. even before I looked more feminine, people thought I was a trans woman just because of my mm. voice and looking. Mm. I just think I've looked a little more like broad and muscular than I would have, would have without testosterone. I just have more of like a Dorito shape and then not a lot of waist. Um, so in smaller legs, I think it just changed my shape a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there are probably a lot of invisible things I don't know about yet. I know I'm sure there's risks of dementia or bone issues. I've heard of that. Um, so I'm just kind of waiting on that, but doing everything I can. I have had some chronic health issues that seem unrelated, but I'm sure I was a bit weakened by what happened. So yeah, it's just been some good things, some bad things, definitely not reversible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you're going to women's circles. That's awesome. We're like, women's yeah, spaces and, but you're describing, yeah, what you're describing is heartbreaking where it's the, now you have to like defend like now, now you're in a position where you, you want to, you know, put women at ease to be like, in case you're wondering, you know, like I am a woman. Part of the, the thing that I've noticed and talked about with a lot of friends is like, because of the prevalence of people on wrong sex hormones, like it's easy to become, and like wanting to protect women only spaces it's easy to become like overly suspicious like i've sometimes caught myself being like is that a more androgynous woman or is that someone trying to like you know invade my women's space you know it like it puts us we're all in a vulnerable position and like how heartbreaking to be like accused you know not that i would never but like you know like even have that suspicion of like is that just a, a a super butch woman or like a woman with higher testosterone levels maybe she's working through a, P, a pcos flare-up you know it's like yeah you know um or like you know the first time i uh, saw like a sephardic woman with just like a lot of facial hair uh i was like oh my god she's it was in a it was an online group and i was like it's a plant you know, like, no, it, she had not been yeah. on testosterone. That was just a naturally occurring, you know? So it, yeah, I've definitely like noticed like a heightened sense of um, fear within myself uh, as it becomes more difficult to decipher um, because of mm -hmm. the synthetic interference. So that, yeah, thank you for just like naming that, you know, just having to kind of preempt, like the preemptively be like, it's okay, everyone. Like, I'm not a trans woman. Like, I'm a, I'm a woman. Exactly. Yeah. I, I guess my, my, maybe the closing question is like, what have you found to be most supportive and healing in these past few years as you regain your, your, your personhood, your, your womanhood, your, your vitality? Yeah. I mean, 
honestly just kind of starting a new life. Um, I'm obviously I still I'm still very close with my family and my very close friends, but I've moved around a lot. Um, mm -hmm. Not really in the old circles that I was. I don't really engage too much with super queer circles. That's kind of I don't know. That's helped me just reclaim like just being a lesbian woman because there are so many things that I could be in those circles. Like I could be a demi boy, whatever. But it's just really refreshing to be around people who support me but are not into that stuff and just be I'm not like super active in women's circles but I've been to a few and that's pretty cool that helps me um just I'm in a really supportive relationship as well um, with an awesome girlfriend so yeah just kind of that new life supporting being supported by by other women close family mm. and it's pretty simple to me. Mm. And then how do you deal with the, you know, what's kind of been called the gender dysphoria? Like when you have feelings come up that are like, oh, I think this would be so much easier if I could just not be in this body or you like, do you still find yourself desiring that impossibility still? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I do, to be honest, I probably have like, less now but maybe half the amount of dysphoria that i had after after detransitioning and i think the difference now is that i'm not trying to go to absolute zero um because mm. in the back of my head you know you can i could never get there i always would have the genes even if i had surgery and was on hormones the rest of my life my body would always say beneath the microscope that I'm a woman and it, that would never change. And that's the absolute zero I could never get to. So now that I'm not like chiseling at that, um, there was just a lot more peace. And when I feel feelings of, Oh, I wish I were a man because I still, I still have very, very masculine energy as a woman. I am only attracted to very feminine women so just kind of reclaiming the fact that I can be a masculine woman and have masculine energy and not be a man brings me some peace and just accepting those more masculine energy traits um, brings less of the thoughts wishing I was a man. Mm. So allowing yourself that flexibility and like the full spectrum and dynamic nature of what it means to be a woman like because anything yes. you do and you know I've said this to a lot of the other women that I've interviewed and worked with but like I really think that you know I'm, I'm constantly talking to women who have been through all sorts of medical trauma um, who have been preyed upon by medical industry you know obviously including the gender identity industry but I, I really mm -hmm. think what you've been through is like one of the most female things that could happen to you like it is so uniquely female to be willing to go under the knife or willing to have these invasive treatments like the self-hate mm. like all the internalizing right wow. like it's yeah. so it's so and i yeah it's so uniquely I, like, I feel like it's the most female thing a, a woman could go through ironically is the like yeah. wanting wow. to be a man right that's an incredible point that's very true yeah 
so just yeah like everything I do is female because I am like right and just yeah coming to that I think can could bring us a lot of peace well thank you so much for your willingness to share your story and I look forward to following your your healing journey and and you know what 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 comes next for you Yes, thank you so much for having me on here. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or family member who needs to hear this content. And if you do share it on social media, don't forget to follow and tag me at Whose Body Is It? So until next time, 